Hi everyone, I'm Kim Winter, your host today. I'm the Global CEO of Logistics Executive Group. Welcome to our vodcast series. And before we start today, don't forget to go to Logistics Executive TV and see the other in our series of podcasts. Today I'm joined by Dr. John Gatorna, very well-known thought leader in logistics and supply chain globally. Has a number of professorships over the last 20 years, relentless contributor to, uh, to articles and books. He's produced uh, more, than, uh, more than a dozen books in my, my memory and uh, 10, uh, 10 languages reproduced. So uh, he's worked with uh, blue chip companies all over the world, many of the, the big ones that you'd expect. And uh, he is uh, really one of the, uh, the great uh, contributors to the industry globally. John, I've had the pleasure of, of running into you at events where we've been speaking at various places around the world over the last 20 years. Um, you're currently based in Sydney. Welcome and thanks for joining us. Thanks, Kim, and a real pleasure to be with you today. Good on you, John. So, John, we're going to have a bit of a deep dive today on, on really what's going on in supply chain currently. I know you're working with a number of organisations by Zoom mainly because, yeah. <laughs> like everybody, you're restricted in your location. Um, yeah. But tell us a little bit about some of the major themes and major issues that really are, are pervading the supply chain at the moment and are taking up your time. Look, I, I think you can pretty pretty well sum it up in one word. There's a lot of language around, but, you know, it all comes down to the COVID shock, which has been an extreme one, much bigger than probably any disruption we've had in our lifetime, to tell you the truth, um, has really got everyone focused on, well, what to do next? And the word that everyone's using is is resilience. How do we, how do we build our supply chains that can... Um, in, 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 you know, where, where we can embed enough resilience to cope with, say, normal business as usual, but at the same time also be sort of prepared for the next big one that will come along. And that's a, that's a difficult balance because if you embed too much redundancy in your system through stock and overcapacity in your manufacturing, and if you bring all your manufacturing home and, you know, get out of all the old sources that you've been getting cheap production from, your cost to serve will go up so much that it'll put you out of business. So there's a there's there's a really fine balance here between uh, how you how do you cope with what I call business as usual capability uh, uh, volatility, which is 40 50 percent variability, 60 percent variability in demand, and 100 percent variability demand when we get the next big shock. And mm. how do we actually organise ourselves for that? That's the I think whether whether it's explicit or whether it's implicit, Kim, I think that's what's on people's minds right now. Sure, I was doing a bit of uh, bit of reading in the last couple of days. Just a whole flow. There's much coming out online, of course, about the stats, about the impacts yeah. of the pandemic and, and on supply chain. What's going on in aviation and in general is very well known, and there's, there's yeah. massive changes going on there. All aspects of really road, rail, sea, and air. Um, are significant from the logistics uh, aspect of supply chain. Um, yeah. I, was, I was reading a piece last night to say uh, that 94% of the Fortune 1000 companies have suffered supply chain disruptions. So it's ubiquitous across all areas and affecting everybody in every operation. Um, talk to us a little bit about understanding the root causes of, of why companies have been caught so short 
Um, I read another piece uh, that was by Boston Consulting Group um, published uh, recently that said 43% of companies um, were, were really looking to make permanent changes past the pandemic because they'd been caught so short that, as you just mentioned, we can expect further disruption downstream, whether it's another COVID type disease or whether it's some other major disruption. Um, that, that's, those are significant numbers. What are you seeing in relation to companies making those changes? Um, what sort of changes do you see them making and how are these being affected inside of organisations? Yeah, look, just to add to that, uh, your numbers, I, I saw a McKinsey article recently and they'd done some research and survey work and they found that something like uh, companies, um, you know, if you have one of these disruptions per decade, it'll wipe out about 40% of the, of, of the revenue in one year. If you have, if you're out of business like we are now for 100 days, uh, you know, an elongated period, it can wipe out your entire profitability for that year. So that, that's the scale of what we're up to. Now, to get back to your original question, though, um, look, I, I, I put it down to um, uh, people just got too blasé about globalisation. I mean, globalisation has been a great thing. Um, we've had the world at our, at our fingertips. We've been able to source things around the world. I think we've made the mistake like we've done in Australia with our universities, to tell you the truth, where we got, we got so dependent on one country, China, for students, that when it's chopped off, the supplier's chopped off, which it was suddenly in lots of things, uh, we're, we're really floundering. Um, so it all started that way when um, the, the, the supply was chopped off in, in those areas where we had single source. And then the funny thing was that when these uh, particular sources came back online, which they did in China, then the next thing that happened was the demand side had gone down because, you know, business had stopped because of the uh, level one, two, three, four um, quarantines that we've had in different countries, to, you know, separation of people. So the demand side's gone down now. So we've copped it on both sides. So really what I think it's now done is people have realised that they've got a bit blasé about it. They've got to go back and rethink, as I said earlier, what balance of, of, of resilience do they need? How much um, agility do we need to build into our system and how much do we need not to build in? Because as I said earlier, if we go too far, we'll go from one extreme to the other. We'll go from being lean like we, you know, leaning everything and making lots of money while things are good to a point where we won't be able to cope with the smallest ripple of volatility. And that's the, the you know, that's the problem facing a lot of companies now. Now, some companies are uh, fortunately for them, like Snyder Electric, uh, where our friend Stuart Whiting is at, uh, are well and truly down the track of digitisation. They've been on that track now for eight years. And, and digitisation is absolutely mandatory to tile the bits and pieces together of data in order to get the visibility, uh, you know, upstream and downstream to see where orders are, what the status of, of them are, in order to take preemptive action when you see things happening, make quicker decisions. And so really digitization is the absolute must have if you're going to cope with and make, you know, good and have good levels of resilience going forward. And the sad thing is many companies haven't really started that journey. And that yeah. journey is a tough one because underpinning uh, digitization, you have to sort out your data, your master data files. And in most companies, as you probably know, 
the master data is a bit of a mess and it, it's going to take a real effort to sort it out. Sure. I guess we're seeing, um, we're seeing a lot of organisations uh, jostling to, with their digitisation journey for those, of, those who have been on that journey to, yep. to platform and to e-commerce if they're behind the eight ball with, with e-commerce. Um, yep. what, what are you seeing, and whether it's in Australia or, or other clients that you consult to globally, in regards mm. to the, the fitness and readiness of, of organisations to, um, to be able to take advantage of this massive uptick in e-commerce where, where obviously consumers um, are choosing the online options because of either health concerns, uh, being locked down, not wanting to go out, not being able to go out. Uh, or just changing their patterns because uh, e-commerce is becoming so much more ubiquitous and so much more well-known in many different uh, segments of the market. Um, what are you seeing there? Look, e-commerce is certainly, um, you know, it's made up a lot of the slack that's been in the system and, and some companies have been, you know, working pretty hard to, to do that and a lot of it's been pretty manual effort, quite frankly, to get their e-commerce working. Um, I don't think e-commerce is going to, you know, take over everything. Uh, you know, people are funny, customers are funny. They, they still like that, you know, social aspect of going out into retailing. I, th I think the, 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 the other extended part of this whole e-commerce question is, is the omni-channel question. And, and this is where most companies that I, I'm aware of still haven't got anywhere near it. And that is when a particular customer chooses to buy through one of six or seven different access points uh, to get to a particular product or particular company, you, if, you've got, if you've got your omni-channel set up, you should be able to see what that cust single customer is buying, irrespective of whether they're going into store, or whether they're buying from home, or whether they're buying through a distributor or whatever. And very few companies have got that omni-channel type of uh, system set up that they can see that. So, you know, we've got a long way to go yet to, to work on the data to be able to know what our end users are doing uh, in order that we can configure um, and, and make the most of it. So the answer, the short answer is we're, we're making progress, but it's, there's still a long way to go on this e-commerce, except for people like Amazon and others who have been in it right from day one. Sure. I guess we're seeing, you know, massive, uh, massive uptick with uh, cloud-based or organizations providing cloud services such as Google and, and Amazon. We only have to look at, uh, I think Google's up 43% year on year for this, so far this year. And those, those are incredible numbers, even though Google is not the largest um, cloud-based uh, service provider. Um, okay. does, can we do, we, do we see new organizations coming in and trying to fight their way in against these behemoths and cloud-based and, and also can we expect massive uh, expansion of the automation companies and, and companies that are providing digital services to, uh, to the rural supply chain? I, look, you know, I, I think there will be a massive uptick in, in uh, cloud-based services, particularly around the tracking and tracing idea. I mean, a lot of the digitization up to date, we struggle with getting our ERP systems and transactional systems sorted out so that, you know, they make sense. Um, going forward, we'll be able to supplement those 
with um, IoT, Internet of Things, you know, type of data uh, that really, uh, you know, ping, they, they ping the, the, the clouds every 10 seconds and you'll be able to come up with, you'll be able to get very low cost devices on um, packages or on pallets or wherever that will ping through you know, the internet every 10 seconds and we'll know where that stuff is uh, outside of the GSM, outside of the normal telecoms. Because the telecoms, when you use telecoms, it's quite expensive. When you just use internet of things, it's, it doesn't cost anything as it were. So there is emerging a whole series of tracking type companies with all sorts of capabilities around location, uh, temperature, shock, and all, uh, refrigeration, stuff like that. Um, and one of them is an Australian company called Traxter, which uh, is being developed by a, a company here, an entrepreneur who comes from outside of the supply chain. And that's the other fascinating thing that's happening, that we're seeing what I call the democratisation of the supply chain technology, mm. where people with all sorts of ideas are coming to the supply chain from out of the clouds. And that's good because it's going to supplement what's there, which is getting pretty stagnant. Sure. Well, thanks for that. I, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about um, and, and tap you on the issue of of what we see happening in China at the moment. Um, yeah. Japan, for example, from a governmental perspective, is encouraging, as we see on the wires, um, I think it was over 80 large-scale organisations. They're actually funding... Um, the, the retrenchment of those organisations back from or, or bringing those organisations back from China back to Japan. Um, I think this nearshoring um, is type of activity is, is likely to continue. Do you, do you think that's a, a knee-jerk reaction from Japan or is that something we're likely to see other countries doing at a governmental level or are you seeing that happening at a private enterprise level? Look, it was already starting to happen, Kim, before COVID. Um, I know companies like, Chinese companies like Hire, you know, the white goods company hmm. uh, that makes all their white goods in China were setting up uh, plants in California and they were doing it because they needed to get closer to the consumer. And that's the whole idea. You've got to if you want agility and you want to be able to attract the attention of the consumer, you've got to be, you've got to have shorter supply chains. And they were going in there setting up production so that they could, um, you know, respond quickly to any changes in fashion. And they'd still have their longer lead times coming out of China for the replenishment idea, but for short term fashion changes, etc. So I think it was already happening in the U S um, I, I think in Australia, uh, we've seen enough to indicate that, uh, look, we've just got over-dependent on China as a single source in many things, uh, including our education system, our tourism uh, uh, industry as well. And we weren't doing anything else. It was all too easy. And so uh, I think we, there's, there's significant um, thinking going on about, well, what are the critical items we've got to near shore or even bring back to our own shores? to manufacture here so that that's part of the resilience going forward. It may cost us a bit more, but then again, with technology and automation, who knows, we may still be able to compete on, on roughly on price and still be have that, that those shorter supply chains. So 
I think China's going to be the big loser out of this, although on the, having said that, they've got a huge domestic population that they can turn their attention to. But I do know that there are com countries, whole countries in, in Southeast Asia, you know, uh, countries like uh, Vietnam and others, who are going to take the opportunity to attract um, companies uh, out of China, uh, give them good conditions, and I think they've got a much better, uh, less autocratic sort of uh, uh, regime there, even though they're, some of them are communists. I think they, they can see an opportunity here, and I think we're going to see that, which will be good because it'll, it'll, uh, it'll disperse that. It, it'll, be make, it'll make the supply base a lot more diverse, which is really what we need in Australia to, to think about, you know, how to diversify our supply base. And if people are moving back to Japan or they're moving to... Vietnam or they're moving to Singapore, uh, that's got to be good. Just, just a quick snapshot on, um, you mentioned a bit earlier on about uh, cold chain and uh, as one of the elements of supply chain. And of course, one thing we know is that uh, during these tough times over the last, what is it now, six or seven months, uh, mm. the year seems to be going pretty fast. Um, you know, cold chain, food provision, food security, have been key elements. Grocery have been key yeah. elements, whereas other segments of consumer markets have suffered horrendously. Um, those yeah. those seg segments have, have, can, have been very, very important, uh, obviously yeah. not just in Australia, but globally. Um, yeah. From your observations, how well prepared have organisations managing food and retail been for the, the massive pressures and disruptions that have taken place, both from the ups, upswing on the supply chain, the top end of supply chain, through to yeah. the uh, extended supply chain into the consumer? Well, I, I think it, it, at the sort of retail consumer level and fast moving consumer goods, groceries and things of that nature, um, they've been fortunate because they've been able to um, supplement their workforce with large numbers of people who have been put off in other industries. So for instance, here in Australia, we had, I don't know, some number like five or 10,000 uh, people were put off from Qantas in the first round who ended up going and working at Woolworths. And, and we've seen similar examples like that. So that's been good. On the other hand, um, you know, when talking to our friends in the ag agricultural industry in Western Australia who depend on uh, the exports up into Asia of, of you know, seafood and, and uh, various other agricultural products, particularly chilled meat products and so on. Uh, the difficulty there has been capacity. And you know, you know more than I do that how the air freight capacity has completely dried up. It's, I think, less than 50% of what it was beforehand when we had all these uh, passenger aircraft running around with belly capacity. So there's been some major problems there. Um, as you know, rates have gone up incredibly. Uh, but people have sort of got by, but it's been at a, at a cost quite frankly, on, on that side of things. But uh, at the retail level and domestic level, we've done quite well in keeping our shops replenished, uh, but it's been due to the fact that we've been able to bring on board large uh, elements of labour that have been put off from other industries. Thanks for that. I, you know, I think that the Australian market has tended to be um, quite specific about taking people from various segments of the economy and looking to to move them into different areas, which is which yeah. has been interesting. And 
in the modeling um, that is being used in various industries in Australia seems to, and New Zealand for that matter, um, mm -hmm. seems to you know, prove quite useful um, when you come under this sort of disruption. And you talk mm -hmm. about capacity, uh, it was interesting, I was, I was uh, seeing something on LinkedIn just the other day to say that the, the, uh, the shipping industry had, uh, in terms of the ships, not shippers themselves, but the, the ships uh, companies mm -hmm. themselves, had tended to have weathered the first half of this year reasonably well. Um, uh, I don't know whether you have any insight into how that has been, given the fact that we earlier on heard about so many cancellations, so many ports that closed, so many um, containers being held up and they were imbalanced and they were in the wrong place. Uh, early on, yeah. February, March, it looked like a bit of a disaster for the shipping sector. Uh, having said that, the, the major shipping uh, corporations and the consortia have been producing some pretty interesting and positive results over the last few months. Yeah, look, I, I heard that too. I, I don't have all the facts in front of me, but I think some of the shipping lines have been very clever. Uh, obviously, the rates have been going up. They've been doing blank sailings. They've been bypassing certain ports. They've been really managing their capacity very well. I think that's what it comes down to, Kim. And they've, they've held up pretty well you know, financially in, in, in that sense. Yeah. Whether that can continue, you know, for another six months, uh, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, one of the problems there, of course, is the availability of containers. And if you ship a lot of stuff to one place and then, you know, you've got nothing to ship back, then you've either got to take empty containers or, you know, or you've got to have no containers. So you, there is going to be a problem at some stage with the imbalance of containers in those shipping movements. Sure. So, so over the last few years, you, you've been very active uh, in promoting and consulting and teaching um, around the issue of being agile um, in supply chains. And, uh, but more recently uh, and prior to COVID, you, you've been talking about pace. You were talking about pace and quickness of, of yep. modelling to, to deal with disruption and lo and behold, we get the mother of all disruptions happen um, yeah. six months after I think uh, I saw you give a presentation on this. Um, talk to us a little bit about that latest modeling in, that you've been yep. working on and, and how that's played into uh, some of the activity that's been going on uh, this year with the pandemic. Okay. Look, you know, uh, there's a limit to agility. That, that's the, you hear a lot of people talk about it. Um, but, uh, you know, agility in many ways is a very reactive thing. And, and in order to uh, react quickly to unknown demand, um, you have to have a lot of capacity sitting around, either in machine capacity or people staffing inventories or raw materials or something. Um, and look, I'm not against it uh, because, uh, around about 40 to 50% of our uh, demand, even today, is very is stable underneath all that. But on top of that, you're going to have the residual 40 or 50%, 60% is going to be volatile. It's going to come from sources that you, you, know, you haven't been in touch with recently. They're not collaborative. They don't share data and this sort of stuff. So in order to react, you've got to be agile. But... Um, I think there's another way of attacking agility, and, and that is a, a bit like if you take the uh, if you take the model that Zara has, you know, of, of what we call uh, clock speed. 
where you, you trim your organization decision making uh, timing cycle down to, you know, instead of taking I don't know, two weeks to process an order and another two weeks to pick it or, you know, whatever, get the stock and ship it. Uh, you, you actually cut that in a half or in by, by two thirds or by three quarters. And because a lot of the, uh, the time used in nor normal sort of cycle time, lead time in order uh, replenishment is time that we take up inside the organization. So I've been sort of pushing this idea of, of increasing the clock speed. And, you know, and if you can get things moving quicker because you've got teams of people who can make quick decisions today by standing and having a standing meeting um, and you, you're not hung up with sort of big committee meetings where people can't make decisions. So there's a lot of processes inside the business. And of course, in all that's got to be informed by, you know, good digitization where you've got analytics on I'm saying to people, if you're a billion, billion dollar company, you need a small dedicated group of people who are culling through the data and, and doing, the, doing the analyses and, and sort of alerting you to different things early. So the combination of in the, the analytics, um, having the data in reasonable shape, having people inside the business who are prepared to take some calculated risks and make quick decisions, all of that makes you more agile. <laughs> You know, and, and, and as a result, you, 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 it's, not, it's not a question of going from naught to 100 miles an hour. In other words, you're not accelerating. You're actually, the whole business is running at a, at a say, monthly cycle or three-week weekly type cycle um, all year round. So you're speeding up the whole process rather than going from naught to 100 when you have to. And so when you get used to doing all that, when the organisation gets used to doing that, it becomes the norm and therefore you are almost agile as a matter of course. Sounds, um, sounds very much uh, analogous with uh, the way sports teams operate, if you like. You draw that yeah. analogy about uh, really lift, needing to lift the pace um, of the modern games, whether it be you know, football, yeah. soccer, rugby, rugby league. Um, one of the things yeah. that obviously happening is, is, is increased pace, increased fitness, if you like, of the organisation and the people in it yeah. to be able to react and to be able to move and to be able to pivot. It's the speed, it's, it's, it's the speed of the ball, isn't it, in, in sport? Yeah. It's not the speed of an individual, it's the speed of the yeah. ball. And it's the same inside the organisation, it's the speed of the item in, information through the, through the business. And all this started back after the Korean War um, where they, they, an American Air Force colonel invented this idea of the UDA loop, which was essentially just... Um, you know, when you're in a dogfight, you make a decision quicker than your, component, your, your opponent, so you'll shoot him down. Well, it's the same idea here. You, you, you know, you, you observe what's going on, you orient yourself, you make a decision, you take action, and you do that quicker than your competitor. By definition, you're going to satisfy your customers um, quicker and better. And if you do that on a regular basis, it, it's not an exception anymore. So the costs are, are not going to increase. And you get you get sort of resilience without the, all the added costs that come from just treating it as an exception. Sure. Yeah. yeah. You talk about, um, you talk about that decision-making pace and, uh, and a lot of what we've heard um, around, uh, it needs some excellent stuff on LinkedIn, of course, and a lot of, a lot of speakers um, giving opinions about ways to approach uh, the, the diversity of issues that, that companies are facing. One of the things yeah. that 
much has been said about it from a military perspective and applied into the supply chain has been this whole ethos of, um, of timing and, uh, and when, when to strike to make an impact or to deal with an issue. Being yeah. that if you strike too early without enough information, um, you, you're likely to go off and, and, and miss the target or, or be beaten uh, or lose the battle. If you yeah. leave it too late, likewise, you may miss the opportunity to strike. And in the middle is that, that patch. Of, it's a zone, isn't it? It's a zone of 60 to 70 or 80% in the middle where, you know, you've got to make that decision, but make it on the best information you've got imperfect though it may be without letting the opportunity to achieve your objective uh, go beyond you and miss that opportunity and, and yeah. lose out whatever the implications of that would be the problem the problem is that you, we you sort of know what we've got to do but when you look at some of these old bricks and mortar companies around um, not the new uh, electronic high tech or the new services companies that we talked about earlier but the old where they've got silos and they've got they've got this old culture of of, of, of uh, risk averseness and, and hierarchical decision-making, you know, you can't turn that sort of thing around in, in a year. It's, it's sometimes four, five, six-year type cultural change. Now, the good news is, and I've been talking to my friends in, in South Africa about some of the big public companies like Transnet, you know, the big transport companies, is that, you know, they're seeing that they're getting more productivity now out of 60% of their workforce than they did out of a previously out of 100% of their workforce because people are understanding the urgency of the situation and are overcoming their fear of change and are embracing change uh, more so than before. And so I think one of the good things that have come out of this, I think you touched upon it you know, earlier, was that the, the, one of the um, uh, points that we'll remember from COVID is that it moved forward the rate of change in our organisations by about, 10 years at least. In other words, we're doing things now and achieving them that we might have not achieved for another 10 years if it hadn't have been for this sort of pressure for change. Because it's always pressure for change that causes change eventually. If there's no pressure for change, there will be no change, you know. So all, all advances in science or anything at all come through some sort of pressure for change and we're certainly getting that now. Sure, have had change, and, and not a lot of people have predicted it. So, um, it, but it's been uh, right amongst uh, all all the supply chains and in every community globally. John, it's it's been fascinating talking to you. It's been excellent to catch up. Um, before we wrap up now, I'd, I'd just like to normally ask our guests just one or two tips for organisations or enterprises that have found themselves significantly disrupted. Um, some have struggled and had to close down. Um, but for those, for when we move forward, for organisations who, who need to recrank and, and restart, uh, what would be one or two tips that you would have in general terms for, for leaders in the supply chain to really think about and put into practice? Right. Well, look, it won't surprise you, Kim, when I say that the one thing that we've, we've got a second chance to some extent. And, and the, the one thing that we want to see from organisations who take that chance is go back to the customer base, their customer base, and understand that customer base really well through behavioural segmentation, understanding the, the range of expectations that exist for their products and services in that customer base. In other words, look, at, look back at ourselves from the eyes of our customers 
and, and come up with a segmentation and then, then go back inside our business and use using that previous information as a bit of a, um, a reference point, uh, start reconfiguring some of our supply chain processes and technologies and combinations. Um, you know, this is the only way to get started again because what it does, it gives us a direct link to our customer. What's been missing is that direct link. We've been sort of looking at our customers from inside the house out through the window and thinking what we think and then going back inside the business and making investments and constructing and designing things. And it hasn't proven to be enough in, in, the, in the sort of, even in a reasonable world, but in a volatile world, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't inform us enough about how we should uh, configure our supply chains, what sort of technology combinations we need, and certainly the organization design. I think that's the second thing, that once, once we understand the structure of our market and the way our customers are configured, we, we've got collaborative customers, we've got transactional customers, we've got agile demanding customers, we've got campaign project customers, and we've got those customers who are in incredible uh, difficulty and need some you know miracle to help them out um, once we understand what that structure is then we can go back inside our business and we can virtually do a mirror imaging job we can create teams inside the business that reflect the, the, the outside teams of customers we can reflect them with inside teams supported by technology and process if we start doing that basic stuff supporting it with all the technology that we've nothing new there or We've got plenty of technology, just putting it in the right places, building the digital uh, story. Um, we'll, we'll end up like, you know, not quite there yet, but Snyder's done a great job in, in and you may have seen uh, the uh, chief executive, uh, Jean-Pascal Tricor, just um, posted a LinkedIn just um, two days ago about the future supply chain. And he's the CEO. And, you know, he, he was, you know, talking about how important it was to, to do exactly that, to look at the types of supply chains that you can, you're building inside, but they've got to reflect what your structure of your market is on the outside. If you get that right, you're 80% there. Well, that's great, John. Uh, thank you again. Very insightful, always interesting, and uh, I wish you well. Uh, I appreciate Thanks. your time today. We'll put in the comments section uh, below this uh, uh, section where people can uh, go to your website. I know you're always happy to help and respond to people with inquiries. Uh, we'll also have a link uh, link to your, your latest book, which I've yep. uh, just begun reading. And uh, to everybody out there uh, who have uh, been helping us out in the supply chain and keeping us safe uh, right the way through, obviously, the, the first responders. I'm sure, John, you'll join me in, yep. in offering thanks Absolutely. to those people right across the board, uh, medical people, first responders in all parts of the world, while things mm. are still tough in many parts of the, of, the, of the globe. Thank you to everybody. And again, John, thank you for your contribution today. Thanks, Kim, and uh, keep doing your good work. Thanks very Take much. Take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye now. Thanks for joining us.